Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. You know, as a young, young kid growing up in New England, we loved summertime. School was out. The days were longer. And uh, the neighborhood, I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of kids, and so the neighborhood would gather in the evenings after dinner. And uh, one of the things that we used to do together or really enjoyed doing was playing the game hide-and-seek. It didn't cost any money, and uh, it got us outdoors, and we just had a great time. You know the game. Somebody is it, and they uh, have to cover their eyes and count, and everyone scatters. And then uh, at the end of the counting... They holler out, ready or not, here I come. And of course, they uh, seek to find you. And if they find you, then uh, they capture you and put you in jail. And you you know the drill. And it's just a a wonderful game. And we would play it night after night, all summer long, year after year, and, and found it to be just a delight. Well, in the passage before us this morning, I've entitled this sermon, Ready or Not, Here I Come. But this is, uh, this is not a child's game. The second coming of Christ, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a very serious matter indeed. When Jesus comes, the curtain on human history, or at least this epoch of human history, will fall. And where one finds themselves, on what side of that curtain will determine their eternal fate, their eternal destiny. It will be one of blessing, or it will be one of the most agonizing and horrific judgments conceivable. Ready or not, Jesus says, here I come. Our text this morning is... Verses 32 through 41. Let me read that for you as we begin together. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Jesus turns in his sermon here, in his teaching time to his disciples, 
from speaking about the sign of his coming in verses 15 to 31, actually the signs of his coming, two of them, the abomination of desolation and then the Shekinah glory that accompanies his second coming, verses 29 to 31. He, he finishes that section and, and he turns his attention now really for the balance of chapter 24 and chapter 25 to the practical implications of that second coming. He begins here, and it it carries through the rest of the Olivet Discourse. And what he basically says is that his return, his second coming, is the deciding event at the end of this age that determines the age to come. It determines those who will be welcomed into his kingdom and those who will be excluded from his kingdom. It will be the final event that will separate, that will sift, that will divide humanity. Those who are his at his coming will see it as a a glorious return. Those who are preoccupied... Those who are opposed to him will find his coming to bring nothing but a certain and terrifying judgment. As in the past here, contextually, Jesus is addressing the Jewish people. This this entire teaching is directed first and foremost to the Jewish nation. The church has already been removed by rapture prior to the events that he is talking about here. That's why the church is not found anywhere in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. So one might ask themselves, well, if this is concerning the nation of Israel and we're not Jewish, then why don't we just skip over the whole thing? What's the point? The point of the matter is that it is the word of God and it is profitable. But beyond that, there is an application to be drawn from certainly this section that we're looking at this morning and that which follows to those of us who live here and now prior to the return of Christ. The application of this reality that when Jesus returns, the curtain drops there's a sense of urgency. There's a, there's a sense of importance, a weightiness that we do well to heed. So in this section this morning, verses 32 to 41, Jesus makes three important points. Three important points concerning his second coming that rightly understood should fix everyone's attention on this cataclysmic event. We should live in light of the second coming of Christ. The first point that Jesus makes in verses 32 to 35 is the timelessness of the warning. There is a certain timelessness associated with this warning. What I mean by that is that this warning remains always appropriate, always germane, always close at hand. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus begins this extended section of application here with an illustration drawn from agriculture. He speaks about a tree who, whose leaves are coming. They're beginning to, to, be, to show on the branches. Simple agricultural illustration. Now, some through the years want to apply this agricultural illustration and, and say that the, and find meaning here in that the fig tree represents the nation of Israel. This is sort of how it's approached. That the fig tree really speaks of the nation of Israel. And, and in 1948, when, when political Israel was, was formed, that is the leaves coming out on the trees. And so what one would say is that uh, the leaves have come to the trees in 1948. And so it won't be long until summer is here in full bloom and, and the return of Messiah for his kingdom. So they tie it all into this 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel. Now, I think the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 is, is uh, certainly significant. It's definitely interesting. But it's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is using a simple agricultural illustration. Biblically, Israel is never compared to a fig tree. So, so to find the fig tree as representative of Israel is to import into this something that's not there. Beyond that, in Luke 21, the parable, one of the parallel accounts of this, when Jesus is speaking here, he speaks not only of a fig tree, but he talks about all trees. Luke 21, verses 29 and 30, he says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you see it, and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So, it's not just a fig tree, it's, it's a statement about trees in general. A simple agricultural illustration. When the tree begins to put forth its leaves, you know that the summer is not far away, that the tree will soon be in full bloom, full leafage. That's just a, a simple <coughs> pardon me. A swallowed leaf. <coughs> Excuse me. It's just a simple agricultural illustration that we can, even in our, in our citified state here, we can sort of identify with, right? When the, when the leaves come out and the tree will soon be in full bloom and summertime is here. Jesus applies this reality. He just uses this as a, as a springboard to talk about what he really wants to talk about. Right? You know that summer is near. So you too, verse 33, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. He's, a, he's just applying common, common knowledge to a, to a deeper and more significant event, and that is the, re, the return of Christ, the coming of Messiah. And he says, when you see all these things, verse 33, what are all these things? It takes us backwards into the earlier part of the, of the message here, the sermon, where it speaks of, beginning in verse 4, where he, he talks about uh, the early birth pangs, right? 
that uh, people will claim to be Messiah and wars and rumors of wars and kingdoms and nations rising and famines and earthquakes and tribulation and persecution and so forth. And, and we spent the time looking at how that relates to the six seals of Revelation. When you see those things happening, following that, verse 15, when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation, beyond that, when you see the Shekinah glory in the sky, the returning of the, of the sun, when you see these things, then know the kingdom is here. In fact, it is, it is right outside the door. That's how close it is. It is that close. The kingdom is close at hand. The reality of this matter, Jesus says, verse 34, is tied to the celestial order. You know, I said, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He is saying that you can take this to the bank. This is secure. The sun rises, the sun sets, the moon comes out, the moon doesn't. You can, you can set your watch by all of this. Know this reality that when the signs begin, when they begin, they will eventuate in the coming of the Son of Man. They will eventuate in the coming of Messiah's kingdom. Now, verse 34 Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. It's an interesting statement. If you are at all familiar with uh, the literature that surrounds these things, maybe you've heard some of this before, there's a definite question about who is this generation? What is Jesus talking about here? Is Jesus saying to his disciples, are they this generation, or is he saying to the disciples, the 12 disciples, that you will not pass away until the signs of the Son of Man come to pass? Is that what he's saying? Is he referring here to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the armies of Rome in A.D. 70? That's what some would say. It's known as preterism. It's a theological position that would, would teach that, that this all came to pass, all from verse 4 through verse 31, is a reference to the destruction of Rome, of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, in order to hold that kind of position, one must do some interesting gymnastics with the text. One must find this to be a rather interesting allegory in order to turn things like the abomination of desolation and all of these types of signs into the Roman destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And beloved, it just, it just doesn't work. So this generation here in verse 34 cannot be a reference to those alive at the time that Jesus spoke. Others agreeing with that reality find in the, in, the, in the terminology this generation a, a somewhat obscure but possible meaning of the, of the word translated here generation as a, as a reference to the entire Jewish nation. 
And basically what they would say is, is that Jesus is promising that the Jewish people will not pass out of existence as a race of people until Messiah's kingdom comes. So it's a promise, they would say, of the, the perpetuality of the Jewish people. Again, it's, it's interesting. Certainly the, the, the fact that the Jewish nation, the Jewish people have survived for 2,000 years when Satan and his minions have sought to their destruction over and over again is an incredible event. But it's not what's being talked about here. There are plenty of scriptures who talk about the reality of the Jewish people continuing, but this is not one of them. Beyond that, the promise itself would be a little off, I think, if he is saying to them that, that, that I truly, I tell you, the Jewish nation will not disappear. They really weren't worried about disappearing, but I'm telling you, the nation will not disappear until Messiah's kingdom comes and then they'll disappear. There doesn't seem to be a lot there. So he's not talking about that. So what is he talking about? The answer is that he is making to the Jewish people as a whole, speaking to the disciples and and to them and through them to all future generations, that he's basically saying this, the generation that is alive at the time the signs begin will be the generation alive when Messiah's kingdom comes. The generation that observes the budding of the tree, the generation that experiences the birth pains, that will be the generation that will witness the birth of Messiah's kingdom. Now, you notice the the pronoun you, right? Truly I say to you. He uses this this you in a number of places here in the text. You can see it over in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 6, you will be hearing of wars. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to the tribulation. Verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation. Verse 25, I have told you in advance. Jesus is using what we would call a, a prophetic you. A prophetic you. This is, this is in keeping with how the Old Testament prophets would address the nation as well. They would speak to the people of their day and to them and through them to a future generation. There is a, a timelessness that attaches to the prophecies. They apply to every single generation in that they hang over every single generation until they come to pass. And that's exactly What is happening here? He is saying to each and every generation that when you see the signs that I have spoken of, know that you will live to see the kingdom come. The kingdom will come in your generation. The implication of that, of course, is that every generation, as I say, lives as if they are the one. Each and every one. They live with Messiah standing right at the door. It could be them. It could be them. And so each and every one of them is to live in light of that reality. The return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, remains hanging over human history. 
And it brings a certain soberness, a certain seriousness to human history. And that when he comes, preceding him will be the wrath to come. And then the establishment of his kingdom. And when that event happens, there are no second chances. There is a timelessness to the warning. Secondly, there is uncertainty associated with the hour. There is a timelessness to it, but there is an uncertainty that's associated with it. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, he says. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. There is an uncertainty. There is a timelessness that it could be any generation. And there is an uncertainty of which generation. Beyond that, there is, there, is a, there, is an, there is an uncertainty about the precise return. Now, this is interesting because we, he, he has been asked and he has given certain signs. And, and one would say, well, if you have these signs, then you're going to know when it comes. And, and Jesus is very careful to say there are signs. Recognize the signs. And when you see them, know that it's close at hand. The tree is budding and, and so forth. But know this, you, you cannot and you will not know the exact day. You will not know the exact hour. That information is not available. That information resides in the sovereignty of God the Father alone. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, it is the ancient of days. In fact, um, one of the favorite verses to teach young seminarians when they're preparing for their ordination exam is Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 which says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's the answer you give when you don't know the question. It's your escape valve. But interestingly, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 occurs in the context of the restoration of the nation of Israel to the land. We talked about that in verse 31 last week. The secret things that Deuteronomy 29, 29 refers to is exactly the event of the return of Messiah to establish his kingdom. And what it says is that it is secret. God alone, the Father, knows it and he chooses not to share it. He doesn't share it with his angels. He did not share it with his son while he walked this earth. According to Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, he won't share it with the disciples prior to the return of Christ to the right hand of the Father. You cannot know. So what does that do to date setting? Kind of silly, isn't it? You cannot know. This is about God's sovereignty, and God does not share his sovereignty in this matter. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting statement, right? Because this is Jesus' self-confessed ignorance. Jesus is saying, I am ignorant of this information. I do not know. And you can imagine the uh, theological discussion that, that originates out of a verse like this. What do you mean he does not know? The answer is, he does not know. It means exactly what he says. I do not know. I do not know. Now, 
It would be outside the realm of this sermon to pry the lid off that box. So I'm going to resist the temptation to do so. Other than perhaps I will make this one statement for you, and it is simply this, that Jesus in his incarnation walked as the man in in dependence upon the Spirit of God to lead and direct him. His information came from what he derived from the scriptures. Unless the Spirit of God directly were to make him aware of something like what was going on in a person's mind, for example. And occasionally he exhibits that kind of omniscience. But generally speaking, in the incarnation, the Son of Man lives as a man in dependence upon the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit just like you and me. Now, if you want to uh, pursue uh, further this topic, and I actually would recommend that you do, there's a tremendous book out there. It's written by a guy by the name of Bruce Ware, and it's called The Man, Christ, Jesus. There are a number of books that I recommend to people. I'll just do it right now. Okay, here are three books. Write them down, get them, read them. I'll start with the fattest and most difficult. Okay? Start with this one. It's called The Greatness of the Kingdom. Actually, if you don't want to start with it, I would understand. It's 600 pages, no pictures. Okay, the greatness of the kingdom. The second book I would recommend is The Man Christ Jesus by Bruce Ware. The third book I would recommend is Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S. Those three books will open your eyes to the glories of God in some ways that perhaps you have never thought of. So anyway, that's the shameless commercial for The Man Christ Jesus. Beloved, the point of all of this is, is that, that it is knowable that Jesus will return. That is knowable. What is unknowable is the exact time. That's uncertain. The scriptures give us a lot of information. Speaks about time, times and a half a time, and the 42 months and so forth. So we can get close. But you can't get exact. Since... No one knows the exact moment. What that means is, is that you need to live your life soberly in light of that reality. You need to watch and you need to be prepared. And that's what Jesus talks about. In fact, the rest of this discourse is, is a commentary and application of the reality of verse 36. So verses 37 And following all the way through to uh, chapter 25 is, is, is about the reality of the coming of Christ and how should one prepare. Okay? So, timelessness of the warning, it hangs over the uncertainty of the hour. No one knows exactly. And then third, the suddenness of the judgment. Okay, the timelessness of the warning, the uncertainty of the hour, and the suddenness of the judgment. Verses 37 to 41. When he comes, it will be unexpected and it will be a judgment that will, people will be unprepared for. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Do you see that? Just like There is something about the days of Noah that speak to the coming of the Son of Man. In those days, 
He doesn't have to leave, you know, he doesn't leave us to guess. He tells us, in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Application, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. He tells us exactly what the point of correspondence is between the days of Noah and his second coming. The point of correspondence will be the reality that the flood came and took away people who were unprepared, unsuspecting. That's the point of comparison. Now, Beyond that, verses 40 and 41 is merely just an, uh, a further statement of this reality. There will be two men in the field, one taken, one left, two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Some have taught through the years that this is speaking of the rapture of the church. See, there are two there, and, and one's taken to be with Christ, and one's left. The problem is that inverts what Jesus is saying. Those taken here, the, the man from the field and the, the woman grinding at the mill, is not taken into the presence of the Lord. She and he are taken into judgment. This is a passage about judgment, not the rapture of the church. It is a statement about the suddenness of the coming judgment and the, and the unpreparedness of the world for that coming judgment. Until the flood came, took them all away. That's a judgment statement. Over in Luke 17, Jesus, speaking of his second coming again, it's not part of the Olivet Discourse. It was given earlier, but he uses the same analogy again. So it's appropriate to be able to turn there. Verse 22, Luke 17, beginning of verse 22, he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Obvious. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Back to Matthew. Jesus' point here is that the world will not be ready. They will not be ready. Verse 38, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. These are statements of sort of everyday normal human life. People will be going about their own business. They will not be prepared. It's interesting, I think, because... Uh, we're told in, in Genesis 6 that, that Noah, as he was building the ark, was preaching to his generation to repent, right? For the judgment is coming. We're told in Genesis 6 that he uh, 
for 120 years. He's preaching to them to repent. And they ignore him for 120 years. They're marrying, they're giving in marriage, they're, they're eating, they're drinking, they're conducting business as usual. And then, right, they enter the ark, God closes the door, the, the, the skies open up, the, the fountains of the great deep burst open, the, the global deluge comes, and the entire planet is washed clean in one gigantic cataclysmic judgment. And when the door closed to the ark, you were either in it or you're outside it. If you are outside it, there is nothing but certain destruction. In the same way, when the Son of Man returns, he will find that the, that the world, the unbelieving world, will be unconcerned and unprepared. They will be going about their business as usual. In fact, if you look at, we won't turn there, but if you look at Revelation chapter 17 and 18, where it, spot, it talks about the fall of Babylon, it talks about the fall of, of economic Babylon, it talks about the fall of spiritual Babylon, and the inhabitants of the earth are surprised when it is wiped out in the coming of Messiah. People are just not ready. People are absorbed in the normal daily pursuits of life. They don't pay attention. Some of you here this morning, that's exactly where you are. You are just caught up in your everyday life. You're you're going about your business. You're doing this. You're doing that. You go to work. You come home. You go to your kid's ball game. You're involved in, in one event after another. You even come to church, but you're not ready. You're not ready. You think that it's, uh, it's way out there, I'll get ready someday. And Jesus says that it's hanging over your head. Today, Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and believe. There is no promise of tomorrow. Now, we normally say you might die, and that's true, you might But in the context here, it's not that you might die and miss out. The context is Messiah may return in your lifetime. And when he returns, the door is closed shut. You have no second chance. You have no second chance. Now, someone may ask, uh, how can it be in the middle of the, of the horrific judgments of the tribulation? You know, right, we've got the seals breaking, and then we've, and we've got the, the trumpets and the bowls and, and all of this devastation is going on in the earth. How can it be that people are still marrying and, and giving in marriage and, you know, and doing business as usual and so forth? And my answer is never underestimate the blindness of unbelief. Never underestimate the blindness of unbelief. How people are capable of rationalizing things. Never underestimate the power of satanic blindness. The God of this world snatches away the truth, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. We should never underestimate the the, the combination of this satanically induced blindness and spiritual self-absorption. So even in the middle of the most devastating time in human history, people are still not looking for the return of Christ. They just don't think it's going to happen. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Where are they taken to? Where are they taken away to? 
Well, later here, actually beginning in verse 31 of chapter 25, Jesus will answer that question. They are taken away to judgment. In verses 31 through verse 46, they are taken away into what's called the sheep and the goat judgment. This is the judgment of the Gentile nations. When Jesus returns, all the nations, verse 34, will be gathered before him, not corporately, but individually. That is, all the non-Jews will be, will be brought before Messiah and they will be judged. And those that are judged as sheep will be invited into his kingdom. And those that are judged to be goats will be excluded from his kingdom and sent off into a place of, of torment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be sent off into judgment. That's what Jesus tells us. Over in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, you mark it down, and I'll talk to you about it more carefully when we get to that section of Matthew 25. We arrive at what's called the judgment of Israel. So Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38 speaks about the judgment of Israel. Israel will also be gathered before Messiah individually, and he will judge them, and some will be invited into his kingdom, and others will be excluded and sent off into condemnation. This is the winnowing process that occurs when the Messiah comes. This is exactly what Jesus talked about back in Matthew 13, right? The parables of the kingdom. You remember back there, we were in Matthew 13 about two years ago, I think. But in verse 24 and following, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in a field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landholder came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to uh, go and gather them up? And he said to them, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into a house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us, please, the parable of the tares in the field. And he said to them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. This is serious stuff, beloved. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. When? The exact hour, the exact moment, the exact day, no one knows. But he is coming. And when he comes, there are no second chances. It will be too late to change sides. You are in or you are out. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 14, speaks of this event himself, writing to the believers. It's just not enough to say, well, I'm going to be in, and and that's all I need to worry about. Peter applies this reality to the believing church. That's to us. Listen to what he says. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Let it be. Amen. Ready or not, Jesus says, here I come. May you be ready. May you be ready for the return of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this promise is more certain than the celestial order. The sun, the moon, stars, those things by which we navigate the earth, those things that can be defined with such precision that we receive a forecast that says the sun will rise at a certain moment and set at a certain moment, that the moon will be full or halved or quartered, on and on. And your son says that his return is more certain than all of that. Oh Lord, what kind of people should we be I pray for your spirit to apply the reality of the the impending return of Christ to our lives. Our Father, as we have been studying these weeks and will continue to study the, the teaching here, the Olivet Discourse, I pray, Father, that it would not be a mere curiosity, a mere satisfaction of intellectual knowledge, but, Father, it would be a cleansing and purifying reality for us that we might be found the right kind of people, those whose hearts and minds are fully set on the Lord. And I pray, Father, for those here this morning whose hearts and minds are not set on the Lord, who are going about their business, conducting their affairs, perhaps mildly interested, but, but actually unconcerned, And Lord, may you press down on them today, this week. May you give them no rest. May the hounds of heaven pursue them and bring them to that place where in humility of heart they would call out to Christ to save them. Oh Lord, do your good work. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.